tell who you are. James. James, the brother of Jesus, is both passionate and practical about the life that his half-brother, Jesus, offers to all. Basically, James says that real faith helps us put boots on the ground. James grew up with Jesus, but only came to faith after, well, he saw his resurrected brother. But once that happened, he quickly became part of the early church leadership team. He became a pillar of the church. James wrote his letter to his Jewish brothers and sisters who were hurting. James knew the struggle, the pain. But he also knew that listening to Jesus was the answer. James had it good. Let's face it. He was raised in a godly home, and he understood the Older Testament actually quite well. But he also grew up with Jesus. He knew that his big brother brought the good news. In fact, he knew his big brother was the good news, that the king had arrived. James did have some advantages over us. But he was on the same journey as we are on. We're learning from Jesus so that we can live like Jesus. James cuts right to the chase in his letter, sharing that genuine faith in Jesus makes a difference, and it shows in every one of our lives. He said that genuine faith shows in the midst of trials and temptations, that we can have joy, literally, which is really different than most of our neighbors. He said that genuine faith shows our obedience and makes us salt and light in our dark world. We stick out. James said genuine faith shows in our spending and how we speak. And that genuine faith really shows how we treat others. In fact, today... James is talking about prejudice. But before we dig in, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we recognize your authority in our lives. We recognize that you are king. We also know, Lord, that at least in this country, the president has called us today to observe a day of prayer. Lord, I know that you love your kids just talking to you. But I also know that when I go through rough waters, when things aren't going as smoothly as I hope, Father, I go to you faster. I go to you with more passion. I cry out to you from, from my heart. And so, Father, would this national day of prayer be a time when your people come together and talk to you about this country and about your church and about us? 
Father, we know that our planet is focused on the coronavirus right now. It's a pandemic. We know, Father, that there are so many who are affected and those even losing their lives. So I pray today, Father, that you would use this tragedy to bring yourself glory. That you would be especially close to those who are affected and those who have the virus. We pray, dear God, even for those who are caregivers and those who are being asked to go the extra mile, our doctors and our research scientists. Father, you made the body. You understand the body. And, and you've allowed this. Would we trust you? Would we be diligent? Would you give even our government the ability to make wise choices and lead us well? Father, we do not want to fear. In Psalm 41, you said, you are a refuge in our strength. You are always there, always ready to help us in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and when mountains crumble into the sea. Father, it feels like earthquakes are here and mountains are tumbling. And so we ask you, dear God, to encourage us, strengthen us in the midst of this storm. We know, Father, that life goes on. And we know, Lord, that that you are in control. So we would ask this, Father, that you would help us as your kids use our time wisely, that we would use this time to grow our dependence on you, and that we would be so open to the opportunities that you give us to be your hands and your feet in a world that is scared. Give your grace to your people, to your church. We ask that we would take advantage and rise up to every opportunity that you have for us. We pray this day for this church and all those who are probably mostly meeting over the internet today. Father, we would ask that your church would be strengthened, that we would worship you with all of our hearts and our mind and our soul, that we would learn who you are and love you better so that we can love our neighbors better. We ask you that you would work powerfully, not only here in Fox Lake and in the areas surrounding us, but that you would work powerfully all over our world. Open our eyes now, Father, as we open up this letter that you used your servant James to write. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to James chapter 2. 
If uh, you would, we're going to start reading at verses 1 and go through 13. If your Bible's not handy or flat screen, you can follow along up on the screen. James 2, 1 to 13. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who will press you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James starts off in chapter 2, and he says this, Something's bothering me. My, my dear brothers and sisters, you who claim to be God followers, there's something that's not making sense. And he says this, How can you claim that you have faith, and yet you favor some people over others? The word favor here means to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or race. This God never does. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Moses writes this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is a great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. The scriptures also say in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18, to basically love your neighbor as yourself. But let me read it in context. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. 
confront people directly so they will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then ends with, I am the Lord. I am your God. I am giving you this instruction, not to burden you, but to literally give you life. People of faith are the only ones actually wired to love your neighbors as yourself. You see, we are new creations. People who have been given a completely new makeup. You see, when folks recognize their need for Jesus, recognize that they are sinful, that they have been separated from God, and realize that Christ died so that we might be able to be reconnected with God, God says, because of your faith, I have made you a new creation. And from that moment on, I'm going to take all of your selfish tendencies and replace them, well, with my God-honoring characteristics. And we literally, as we walk with God, He chips away the things that don't mirror or don't reflect God very well. So really what James is saying, he says you are new creations if you have genuine faith. But you're doing something very odd. You're not reflecting God. You don't have genuine faith. You are not walking with God. Actually, your prejudice shows this. You're favoring the rich, and you literally are missing out, my brothers and sisters. And he has just kind of a side note here. And he, and he goes there, the poor, well, they're rich in faith. And the poor really depend on God differently and love God differently. And basically, James just says, catering to the rich is just a really poor choice. In Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, the scriptures say this. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. (laughs) What a great introduction. Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor. And do not scheme against each other. Let me put it bluntly. Prejudice is sin. It is sin. Now, some may get a little distracted and think that James is really talking just about the rich and the poor, but it's much bigger than this. The text is not specifically about that. It's about prejudice. Now, many of you are probably sitting back there, at least today on your couch or in your kitchen, And probably saying, well, Rick, I don't even know why we're talking about this. 
<laughs> I'm not prejudiced. Hey, you know, back in the 60s, people were prejudiced. Or, or a long time ago, people are prejudiced. But really, we probably are more prejudiced than we think. We are normally drawn or usually drawn to those people who can benefit us rather than deplete us. Sometimes we use the word extra grace people. We're all extra grace people sometimes, and and folks have to treat us with kid gloves. But when we have relationships with, well, a choice between those who are extra grace and are going to take a lot of time and deplete us, or those who we're drawn to enjoying their fellowship and their jokes and their activities, we usually go that direction. You know, sometimes we're prejudiced um, because really economic status kind of weighs in. Sometimes we are drawn to those with better jobs or better houses or better cars. Sometimes we're prejudiced against those that what we would consider have poor parenting skills. Well, they let their kids do this, and oh, I, I, I better stay away from them. Maybe it's entertainment choices or reputation. Or maybe we are only drawn to those who literally fear God and love God. Well, today, as we enter oh, the polling places, not only this week, but coming up, we sometimes are just drawn to those who think and align with our political thinking. Well, you know, I'm a pastor, and I not only look at me personally, but I also look at the church. And this is a little bit of the, of the illustration that James actually was talking about. And I ask the question, God, where are we prejudiced? And I think at times the church and even our church is pre- prejudiced toward those who are gifted. Or in other words, those who can benefit the ministry here at Crosspoint. Those who can sing and worship and play. Or maybe those who can teach. Or those who can swing a hammer. Or those who are a little bit technically bent or just plain servants and and we're we're gracious to them and we applaud them and we want to hang out with them but if there's someone that walks in that doesn't have much to offer sometimes we're busy maybe it's the wealthy and all of that do we treat those that have money differently? One of the things our elders have set up, at least in this church, is that I have no idea who gives and who doesn't give. And the truth is, is that it probably would affect how I treat people. I I would say I wouldn't want to do that. But I, I bet it would. Over the years in ministry, there's always that pull. There's always that consideration. I remember one of the years in, in the past where 
as we kind of worked in various churches, both Sharon and I, and served at different churches, there were different incidents and different crises and different scenarios that happened. But I remember often, given the choice over and over and over again, where we knew, or I knew, there were people who were very generous. And yet needed to be confronted. And yet we're treating people unjustly. And yet their sin was quite apparent. And as leaders, we often had to make a choice. Because if we confront a person or a family, there's a good chance that they're just going to go down to the church at the end of the block. But I think, again, what James is saying is it's wrong. It's wrong to treat people differently, whether they're gifted or whether they're wealthy or, or even in the church, whether they're available. Life is so busy right now. Whether they have good reputation. Now, granted, leadership does have a responsibility to protect and to equip the flock. But if leadership or people here treat people different because of what they can offer us, James says it's wrong. In fact, he goes back to the royal law which says treat others like you would like to be treated. Isn't that something we learn as young children almost? whether it's a brother or a sister. Or, now look, I want you, Johnny, to be able to treat your sister the way you want to be treated. I am. No, exactly, you're really not. You're just not. And so we hear that message, we understand that message, but oftentimes we're incapable of actually doing it if God hasn't come into our lives and made us new creations. I think right here, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 are critical. So if you could look at your Bibles, I'm going to read that again. Uh, James chapter 2, starting at verse 12. So whatever you say and whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James, again, he doesn't pull any punches. He says this, you're going to be judged by God. He keeps referring to God. And whether you have kept his life-giving law or principle of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. God desires that we give mercy, that we're gracious toward them, which also benefits you. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, in almost every one of our, our studies since we've been in James, we've gone back to the Sermon on the Mount somewhere in the message. The reason being is that James was so highly influenced by Jesus' words. 
And we can see the parallels all the way through James. And we can also recognize that James spent a lot of time in Proverbs because of his writing styles and the different things that actually have have come through his letter. So really, one of the things, as Jesus starts off his Sermon on the Mount, he starts off with the Beatitudes. And he is teaching people what the kingdom looks like. And he is changing all of the price tags, all of the things that seem important to those in that culture. Jesus says, I'm changing it because in my kingdom, we do things differently. We treat people differently. We think differently. And this is one of the greatest of all messages. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So Jesus starts off in in a very... I think, bold way as a rabbi, and just says, I'm going to teach you all the things that God really honors. And he said, God blesses you when you are poor. That's when he starts off. Because you realize your need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. And then goes through a few different things, but in verse 7, God says this, God blesses those who are merciful. It's a big deal in the kingdom. Because then you will receive mercy. But I want to I, I focus on just a little bit different part of um, this message that, that Jesus gave. In chapter 5, looking at verse 43. These words, all of his words just kind of put you, I, I, you just have to gasp. But in verse 43 of chapter 5, it's just about the midpoint of his message. Jesus is just cooking right now, all right? But this is what he says. You have heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I want to stop right there because most of you said, well, does the Bible really say, you know, I mean, at first glance, does the law really say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? No. It doesn't, but that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is literally saying this. You have heard people teach about the law. And they teach the law like this. You should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is literally clarifying that, well, or acknowledging that that's what some people teach about the law. Verse 44. But I say, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Now, if you were there, and I'm pretty sure you weren't, but but if you were there, your jaw would drop right now. You would gasp. You, You would turn up your hearing aid. You would lean a little bit forward because nobody, nobody ever said this before. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting like true children of the Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward is that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. 
if you are kind only to your friends, how different is that from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. And I want to stop for a moment because that's exactly what James is saying all the way through his book. Those who have genuine faith don't act like everybody else. Your lives are so different. Your life shouts, literally. And then verse 48. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So many of you know, if you've been around our teaching, the word perfect isn't talking about perfection, it's talking about maturity. And so Jesus literally says, you are to be mature. You are to act like you are a mature child of God, even like your Father, putting the bar up. So Jesus continues to upset the apple cart, literally blows us away with his words, and we're not done yet this morning, believe me. But what Jesus is saying, loving your neighbor is good. That's a good thing. But in his message, he says, loving your enemy is best. And we stop right there. Most of us, again, at least in the church, don't have enemies. Well, we can change that word a little bit. How about those you're either prejudiced against? Or how about those that you don't like as much? Or maybe you just flat out do have enemies, and we can just use the word enemies. But true children of God act this way. They love their neighbor, and they love their enemies. They serve their enemies. They're sacrificial. Say, Rick, what? what are you talking about? Well, let's keep digging. James just really said imposters don't act this way. You can say you're a Christian. You can say you go to church. You can say you follow God. But I'm letting you know that if you don't act like this, hmm, I'm suspicious. See, God does act this way. And we get to mirror God as we spend time with him. It's loving your neighbor that will make you different. Excuse me. It's loving your enemy that will make you different. It will cause you to stand out. It will show your faith. Now, here's the kicker. Jesus also told stories other places at other times called parables. And Jesus told a story to help us understand who our neighbor is. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It is a parable that just about everybody knows. It's called the Good Samaritan. Let's watch this clip. about a Jewish man who lived in Jerusalem. One day, the man decided to visit his friends in Jericho. He set out on his journey, enjoying the beautiful sunshine. What a great day for a long walk. But on his journey, two robbers appeared from out of nowhere. Somebody help! The robbers took the man's stuff and beat him up. They left him laying beside the road, nearly dead. Soon, a priest came along on the road. This seemed like good news since priests were known to be close to God and good helpers. 
Please, help me. But the priest saw the wounded man, and he pretended he didn't. Instead, he crossed to the other side of the road and kept walking. Next, a man who worked in the temple walked by. This seemed like good news. If this guy worked in the temple, he must be close to God and willing to help. Please, help me. But the temple assistant pretended not to see the man dying beside the road. He crossed to the other side of the road and kept walking. Next, a Samaritan came along. The Jewish man didn't expect him to stop. Everyone thought Samaritans weren't very nice or helpful. But the most unexpected thing happened. The Samaritan stopped. He got into the ditch with the Jewish man and bandaged his wounds. Thank you for stopping to help. The Samaritan loaded the hurt man onto his donkey and took him to an inn. He paid for the Jewish man's room and asked for them to take care of him. Do you think it's better to look like someone who helps others or to actually be someone who helps others? Jesus asks us to be someone who helps, just like the Good Samaritan. This story literally shocked the hearers. We've heard it so much. We've told it, perhaps, to our kids. We've told it to others. We've heard sermon after sermon after sermon on this. And we sort of get it. But James hits the nail on the head. It's not those that look good. It's not those that have a lot of biblical knowledge. It's not those who are religious. It's the merciful that stick you apart, that allow you to stand out. Nobody, if you understand the story, nobody would do this. And that's just the point. You might have thought, well, the priest should do it and the scribe should do it because they at least know a little bit more about God. But nobody, nobody, nobody would think the despised Samaritan, the one who, at least socially, in Christ's environment, would be called the outcast. No one would think that the Samaritan would stop, would be inconvenienced, and not only care, This is what's so amazing about this story. But gave extraordinary, extravagant care that was both sacrificial and inconvenient. Do you get it? James said, this is the kind of treatment that you would like. You get beat up. You get stripped. You're lying on the side of the road. Your hope, would somebody help me? We can walk by. Well, that was some kind of a stupid idiot. Why would he be traveling on this road? Everybody knows robbers are here. Ha! <laughs> Yeah, it's true. 
but he's still there. Hey, what kind of a numbskull would carry money with him down the road like this? He's just asking for trouble. You're right. He is. The story doesn't talk about motives. The story doesn't talk about all the details except that two really good religious-looking people just walked right by and gave no mercy and gave no care. But someone, unnamed, was walking and treated this complete stranger admirably, honorably, and lovingly. Served this person. Could Jesus be talking about treating others like this? What would happen if a church, if a family, if an individual would treat others the way they actually wanted to be treated? I bet by God's grace our words would be different. I bet our spending would be different. I bet our actions would be different. So realistically, maybe more of us are prejudiced than we would think. More of us make judgments on who should receive care and who shouldn't receive care. We look at our calendars and we look at our commitments and why would we do this? And Jesus just simply said, because that's how you want to, you would want to be treated. And James piggybacked on it. Now I'm going to wrap up. And as I do, I just want to remind you that real faith helps us respond to others like God responds to others. This may look really different the next few months. We're in an area that's not highly affected with coronavirus, and, and maybe that will even accelerate. But I know this, is that our culture is panicking. And justifiably so in some cases. But we are going to be able to treat others the way that we wanted to be treated. And I'm wondering how this week God's going to give me the opportunity to be his hands and his feet. I don't know what divine appointments are coming. I, I don't know exactly what God has up his sleeve. But, you know, I'm excited to be able to say, Lord, I don't always think of others before me. I know that you are living in me. I know that you are changing me. I know that you are energizing me. I know you are giving me new eyes. And, God, I want to listen to you. Not only today, while I'm in this empty auditorium, worship center,
but I want to listen to you tomorrow. And I want you to change me because I'm just really a selfish person. So, Father, would you do that? Would you use your family to be your hands and feet in this next week, in this next month? Well, maybe, maybe as long as you give us breath. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for James' courage. I thank you for the ability that you have given each one of us to be able to treat others like you've treated. Lord, I know that we can't do this on our own. And I know that we'll never be able to point people to Jesus unless we stay connected to you. So Lord, first of all, my prayer is that we spend time with you so that we can see better how you treat others and that by your Holy Spirit and through his conviction and guiding and empowering that we would treat others like we would want to be treated. God changed this world. But in order for you to do that, you need to probably change us. We pray this in your son's amazing name. Amen.